By your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to your holy dwelling place. Exodus 15, 13. Wonderful. And I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with Susan Hubbard in uh, study through Exodus chapter 15. That will be uh, for our monthly podcast that will be released next, uh, next Monday. It'll come out. We're not covering Exodus 15 here on Sunday mornings, but we will be covering it in the podcast. So if you're excited about learning more about the Song of Deliverance, we'd invite you to access that content, tune in, and join us there as we break down uh, that wonderful song of worship that the people sang after crossing the Red Sea. Today we enter the second movement of our study through the book of Exodus. The first movement has largely been consumed with God's act of redemption. He's redeemed his people, he's freed them, and now they're moving into the wilderness and he is going to begin to form them into a nation. Through the waters of the sea, the people have come from bondage to freedom. And this is God's pattern of redemption. In chapter 15, the people pause, they rejoice, they celebrate, they worship, but their gratitude and their satisfaction would prove fleeting. No longer slaves, the people face a new reality now, one that is more of a nomadic and wandering nature. There is a developing nation called of God being formed by him in the wilderness of Sinai. And they are not alone. There are enemies all about them, behind them, before them, within and without. And some of those enemies are named anxiety, worry, doubt, faithlessness, uncertainty, and fear. How will God provide for his people in the wilderness and what would God prioritize as he ordered and formed his new nation it is those questions that we'll explore together today as we turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 16 if you have your Bible you want to take it and turn it to Exodus 16 now we're going to look at the first 14 verses together as we begin to unpack the second movement of Exodus Exodus 16 1 to 14 and before we read, we'll pray. Father, your word is good and we need it. We need it because we're in our own wilderness here. Not without purpose. You've placed us here with reason, but Lord, it is scary. It is uncertain. There are many things that come out of nowhere and unsettle us. Sometimes they are disruptive. Sometimes, Lord, they are destructive. Father, we need your wisdom. We need your word. And so we gather as part of our habit on Sunday mornings. And together as a congregation, we surround your word. It is sweet like honey. You intend for us to consume it together. And we are not alone. It's not just us and your word, but your Holy Spirit is active right now. He is moving in and among us. And Lord, we trust you. We trust that you, through our study, will apply to each one of us what we need. For those of us that are comfortable, Lord, unsettle us. Cause us to grow, to change. For those of us that come in here, perhaps a bit unsettled. 
maybe afflicted today, disrupted. Let your spirit bring the comfort from your word that's needed. We know that you can do both with the same text. It's a miraculous thing. And Lord, it's why we love your word. What a good and gracious gift you've given to us. Guide our time together as we study it today. Help us to use it in the world that you've planted us in so that we can have effect for you with the people that you've placed in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus 16, 1 to 14. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is Elam and Sinai between them. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. You notice a theme in the text this week? And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. I love that. Flake-like thing. Fine as frost on the ground. You will. God has preserved his people. They've come through this incredible adversity they are now moving from the sea of chaotic waters into an ocean of untamed wilderness. Take a look. When do you think you'd grow tired of seeing the camels? Oh, look. Look, Mary, that one has two humps. 
Imagine 40 years seeing that lovely. After the great miracles of God and witnessing the power of the staff in the hand of Moses, we would think that the people might feel settled and secure. Their great leaders were before them. There was a pillar that was representing the presence of God that went before them. They were not alone, but they are scared. They're scared. And as we examine these first 14 verses of chapter 16, two themes begin to emerge. The first is related to the posture of the people, and the second is related to the goodness of God. First, the posture of the people. Instead of worship and honor, immediately after chapter 15, what are they doing? They're grumbling. I love the NET translation. They use the word murmuring. Murmuring. Same connotation. Eight different times. Eight. Eight different times in verses 1 to 14. Grumble or murmur. Now this is different than a complaint. A grumble or a murmur is different than a complaint. A complaint can be an individual remark that we make about the temperature or the quality of our food. Right? Well, that wasn't very warm. That wasn't cooked the way I wanted it. Maybe it's the quality of your internet. Why is this going so slow? Maybe it's the performance of your favorite sports team. Boy, they played horrible. A grumble or a murmur is different. A grumble or a murmur is a complaint that invites participation from others. That's the difference. And most of us are guilty of this. Can you believe he or she did that? I can't believe it. How are we going to pay for this or that? I wonder how they're going to pull that off. And we could go on and on if time permitted, but we won't. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining. None of it is honoring to God. And it is unequivocally identified as sin in the Bible. And it is something that as individuals and communities, myself included, we should be in the habit of repenting and asking forgiveness for regularly. Both to the Lord and to the people we grumble against. Grumbling often creates doubt. That's what's going to happen in this chapter. It poisons the well. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Poisoning the well? We begin to get others to think negatively about our leaders. It undermines leadership. It causes other people to give up hope, to lose respect for those that God has put in positions to lead. And this is exactly what's happening in our text this morning. And in the many years since this event occurred in the wilderness, we, the people of God, we haven't changed much. We still do this. The indictment's as much on myself as on anyone else. I'm not innocent. The writer sums up the murmurings that are going on in the following manner, beginning in verse 3. If we only had died, if only we had died, once we had everything we needed, but now we don't. In our minds, there's lack. 
You must have brought us out here to kill us. Moses and Aaron, they are frustrated leaders. Frustrated. They're at the end of their rope. And suddenly in the the midst of all the murmuring, God speaks. And as God speaks, a second theme begins to come in these 14 verses. God is going to speak with purpose. And the purpose for what he is going to say and what he is going to do is so that the Hebrew people will know. Remember last week we talked about the certainty of the people being stripped away as they entered into the wilderness. One of the realities that came along with that is that the certainty that they had held so tightly to in Egypt was now gone and there was great uncertainty. Where will we sleep? How will we eat? Where will we find water? How are we going to survive? What are we going to do out here? What's our purpose for even being here? Where are we going, Moses? Who's supposed to be leading us? What are we going to believe? And where is God? Woo! Big questions. Big complaints. All of the answers to the major questions that they had related to thriving and living had become very cloudy. And very uncertain. So in the Exodus, in one way, God removes the certainty of the people, a certainty that was grounded on a false sense of security that was actually bondage in Egypt. And now as he moves them into the wilderness, he is going to reform and rebuild their certainty. But he is going to do it on the solid rock of his own character. God replaces the uncertainty in the grumblings of his people with several very certain you will statements. They're on the screen for you this morning in the first 14 verses. You will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 6, you will see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your murmurings against the Lord. Verse 7, you will know that the Lord has heard your murmurings when you have meat and bread to eat. Verse 8, You will experience God's provision. Verse 12, you will be satisfied by God. Verse 12, and all that you may know, I am the Lord your God. Verse 12. Moses is quick to point out in verse 8 that the grumblings of the Israelite people, though they are directed at Moses and Aaron, are actually falling directly onto the ears of our Lord. When God places imperfect yet faithful leaders over a people and the people complain, their complaint is against God. And this is a sobering thought for all of us. God will provide and his provision does not always come when or how we think it should, nor does his provision always look like we expect it to. And God's appointed leaders will always be insufficient, inadequate, ill-equipped, and imperfect. There are no perfect leaders. I'll amen that. And if you find one, run. 
get out. In the waiting, in the stumbling, in the wandering through the wilderness, what does it look like for us to be led by imperfect leaders while we wait on the Lord? This is what Israel's discovering. And in verse 10, Aaron speaks. And the entire congregation is privy to the supernatural manifestation of God's glory as he appears in a cloud before the people. Just as God had brought his judgment and mercy to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they would know that he is the Lord. He would now bring his provision and grace to his own chosen people that they too would know. So, as verse 13 described for us, the evening would bring the quail, the morning a layer of dew, which after evaporation would leave behind manna on the surface of the wilderness. This is how God would provide. Not in the way that we would expect. Would the Hebrew people believe? Would they obey? We all know where this is going, right? Would they have eyes letting them see? Would they worship? These are the questions that begin to unravel as we continue to the second part of chapter 16. It's very interesting. Verse 15 arrives with almost this humor that's indicative of a stubborn and stick-nuffed people such as we. God has just clearly said what he was going to do in the first 16 verses. And then in verses 13 and 14, he absolutely does exactly what he says he's going to do. Think about the miraculous nature of what just happened. Manna has just rained down from heaven. Quail has just come up from the earth. And verse 15. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What's this? Oh. Do you ever feel for Moses and Aaron? I feel for Moses and Aaron sometimes. I'm like, oh, these guys were up against it. Moses said to them, it is the bread. It's the bread that the Lord's given you for food. Guess what? This response would be echoed many years later when the true manna from heaven, the very bread of life, would rain down upon the people and they would refuse to receive him or to look upon him as their Messiah. Verse 18 reminds us that as the people gathered what was on the ground, whether they gathered much or gathered little, they were never lacking. Never. There was an abundance. And as they settled into this new reality, something that should have been rejoiced in and celebrated, there's this concern that begins to creep in. And it's a concern that bears with us still today. What if one day there is lack? What if we wake up one morning and that provision isn't there? What if there isn't enough? What if something that we so desperately rely on is no longer present? We live, friends, with the perpetual fear of lack. 
And so like the Israelites, we often gather up much more than we actually need. There is security in having a lot of stuff that we never use. I know this. I have an attic too. <laughs> what if we need that one day? What if that one day never comes? <laughs> Verse 19, Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it till morning. Verse 20, surprise, they did not listen to Moses. Some kept part of it until morning, and it was full of worms and began to stink. And Moses was angry. One habit of a well-formed faith is to trust and to live like we believe that in Christ and with Christ, we will always be provided with what we need. For the Christian then, for the person of faith, the person who is in Christ, there is never a threat of lack. God is forming his people in a well-ordered and thoughtful way, in ways that would encourage the glory of God's name among the nation and in ways that would also be good for his people. Verses 22 to 26 demonstrate that God not only provided his people with food, but he also provided his people with a way to rest. Oh, resting. Every once in a while in my morning walk, a thought creeps into my mind. And the last few days, the alarm's been like between 4.30 and 4.45 for whatever reason. I usually get up before it. And as I'm out, the last few days, this word rest has been hitting me like a hammer. That doesn't sound very restful, does it? I believe that we can be in neck deep in life's most difficult circumstances and the pain that can come in different seasons and different places that we walk. And because of Christ, in those places and in those seasons, somehow, in some way, we can still find rest. That was my prayer. Lord, I'm in neck deep. Teach me how to rest. He's always providing ways for his people to rest. He's still encouraging his people to form regular habits for Sabbath rest. Jesus said the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Then he said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. So somebody said to me uh, something along the lines of, when, when are we not resting? And I said, I don't know. When's Jesus not Lord? He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's always Lord. For Christians today, then, the Sabbath is much more about a person than any particular day or time. Our ultimate Sabbath is found in Christ, 
Jesus is the Lord of our lives seven days a week. He is our Sabbath rest. Lord, help us find rest in you. And our problem is very similar to the problem of the Israelites. We're sometimes so caught up in all the gathering of provision that we've neglected to take time to rest, to rejoice, and to give gratitude and glory to God. For followers of Jesus today, then, the day is arbitrary. The habit is not. When we choose to take rest, to take a day off, to glory in God's provision, to worship the Lord, to spend time with other believers, we embrace and practice a God-ordered habit that keeps us thankful and focused on the God who has provided. And friends, this all remedies what's going on at the beginning of the chapter. Because a thankful people, guess what? A thankful people, a grateful people, a rested people. When's the last time you found somebody who was resting and grumbling? We don't do it. Oh, this rest is just horrible. I hate it. <laughs> My recliner is terrible. The habit of Sabbath rest, it's a remedy for the grumbling. So that we might remember and rehearse the provisions of God, worshiping and rejoicing and giving glory to him alone. Let's pick up in verse 26. Six days you'll gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. On the seventh day, some of the people, what did they do? Isn't that so funny? It's like God says this and the people do the opposite thing. On the seventh day, there's not going to be any. But verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people did what? They went out to gather. And guess what? They found nothing. And the Lord said to Moses, how long? I'm so thankful that the Lord says this too. God's people say this, how long? The Lord says it too. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See? The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, in the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And as the chapter comes to a conclusion, one of the realities that we learn is that the people are going to have this manna until they come to the threshold of the promised land. God is going to provide daily over and over and over again. So in chapter 14, God provides a way through the sea. All the people had to do was, do you remember last week? Be silent. That was chapter 14. Chapter 16, God's going to provide the manna and the quail. The people only need to gather it up, rest, and be satisfied in his provision. Silence, rest, satisfaction with God's provision. Aren't these very countercultural postures in a world that seems incredibly loud, terribly busy, and entirely dissatisfied? What a way to shine for Christ today. To live as a people who are confidently silent, habitually rested, and consistently satisfied with God's provision could be a very effective way to demonstrate the power of the gospel at work within our churches and within our lives. God's forming a nation. He's setting apart a people unto himself. He's 
calling them to live as aliens and sojourners in this foreign wilderness while he leads them to a land of promise, a great inheritance. And church, we are called by the same God. And in our bold and quiet, steadfast silence, he can bellow his name through the ends of the earth. In our habitual solitude and rest, he can magnify his works, his name for eternity. It's hard for us to trust and to live according to it. It's hard for the Israelites. And as we turn to chapter 17, we're only going to find that their struggle persisted. Look at verse chapter 17, verses 1 and 7. All of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what did you think the people learned? And this time they didn't grumble. They rejoiced. God's going to provide for us. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Grumbling and the murmuring of chapter 16 is now turned into a fool-out argument or quarrel. The people are arguing, they're testing, they're contending with both Moses and God. And their questions contend against both the presence and capability of God. God, are you really here? Are you really with us in this place? But they also contend against the capability and the adequacy of their leader, Moses. And I love what Moses does here. In verse 4, he turns to the proper source. We find him before the Lord. He recognizes that the people's patience with his leadership is wearing thin. And this time, I love what the Lord does. He brings an entirely new dynamic into his instruction from Moses. Something we haven't seen since early on in the plagues. Look at verse 4. Let's read these few verses, verses 4 to 6. Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people. Now here it is. Taking with you what? Some of the elders of Israel. Something new. Our antennas should go up. Take in your hand the staff, that's not new, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of who? The elders. Mm. We're going to learn this this week and next week. Moses is not enough. Aaron is not enough. There are elders who are also desperately needed to help lead and guide the people. 
And as God has determined, it's now time to get these other leaders and elders of Israel involved. And this is one of the roles that the elders of Israel play to aid in the formation of God's people. At this point, the Hebrew people are forming as this grumbling, quarreling group of people who are lacking in courage, faith, and obedience to God's direction. Moses, Aaron, and the elders, they are to show a different way, a better way, a more holistic way to live, a way that looks like shalom. And the elders were now being called upon to join Moses and Aaron in witness to the power of God. The elders, in turn, could then go back into their respective camps and could encourage the people to trust in the Lord and obey his commands. They have seen it, experienced it with their own eyes. It was the elders then who could assist in alleviating fear in bringing a ceasing to the grumbling and the murmuring and the quarreling. And the way that they could do it, one of the ways, was to remind and to rehearse with the people that God was working and he was in control. God's got this. You know, Christian leaders can do the same thing today, both in our congregation and in our broader communities. And I'm thankful to be able to serve here at CNBC in an elder-led church with a group of men that do this exactly. They're wonderful at it. They go out and, and they help. They help aid in the formation of the people. Young people, older people, older, older people, all of us together. The older, older people are the really wise ones. Good. They get two olders. I'm not attaching an age to that, by the way. But it's wonderful. I've seen this work. I've watched our own elders do this in our church. I've watched their people, you know, get, get fearful about something. Maybe they get worked up about something. They begin to have concern. And one of our elders, they go, and, and, and they're like a presence of peace. God, he's, he's got this. It's all right. You know, watch, watch what God does. Let's see how he works. We're going to get through this. We can do it. It's a wonderful role for Christian leaders to play in the church today, and it's needed. It's needed to keep congregations together. If the elders don't step up in Israel, if they don't begin to go into their camps and tell people that they can rely on Moses and Aaron as leadership, that they can trust in God, that they can follow him, that his ways are good, that he works, the people are just going to grow divided. It's going to become a mess in the wilderness. God's going to provide water from the rock and the elders could witness it. And then they could go and share with others that there was no need for them to fear. And the event is so significant that Moses memorializes the location. Look at verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Later, again, looking way ahead in the founding of the early church, Paul equates the rock with Christ. And just as the rock was struck in order to produce water that would give life to the people, so too would Jesus, our Messiah, one day be struck and provide living water for his people. 
The rock is Christ. All over this text, all over 16 and 17, 18 and 19, all over images of Christ. All over. Not by accident, by intention. So wonderful. The power of God's word. Now, if people can't move through a wilderness and a mysterious, untamed wilderness without coming face to face with the curious inhabitants of that wilderness, there are other people who live in the wilderness. Out of Esau, the brother of Jacob, came several of Israel's future enemies. Amalek was the son of Eliaphaz, which made him the grandson of Esau. And so the Amalekite people were descendants of, yet distinct from, the Edomites. The times are tough for the Hebrew people. First, there's a struggle to recognize God's provision of food. Then, there's a struggle to recognize God's provision of water. And now, there's an enemy. An enemy. All along, God's provided The people couldn't see it. They couldn't trust it and walk accordingly. accordingly. Let's see how they respond to their first clear and present enemy post-Egypt. Look at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Moses, Aaron, and Hur, these are three significant leaders of the Hebrew people. They retreat to the top of this hill. It's an act of faith. Moses is carrying with him his staff. He knows how God can work wonders through this simple shepherd's tool. Look at verse 11. Whenever Moses would raise his hands, then Israel prevailed. But whenever he would rest his hands, then Amalek prevailed. Isn't this amazing? Why is this here? Do you ever ask that of the scriptures? I ask it a lot. Lord, why did you put this here? God is perfectly capable of bringing a victory without using Moses and the other leaders in this manner. But God is teaching Moses something that's so important that's going to be reiterated even next week in chapter 19. He's teaching Moses how to use and lean on the people that God has put around him. Moses' father-in-law is going to come next week in chapter 18. We won't get there this week, next week. And he's going to tell him the same thing. Moses, you can't do this by yourself. Below, at the bottom of the valley, one of the greatest warriors of the Old Testament, Joshua, is dutifully and masterfully masterfully ordering and directing these regimens of Hebrew fighters. And above this image, three leaders relying on the power of God, learning how to hold up, support, encourage, and work together with one another. Friends, it's not just an image for Israel. It's an image for the church. Moses' staff are indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 
Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and Hur are the people that God has surrounded us with to walk through this wilderness. Church, we learn together how to bear one another's burdens, how to hold up one another's arms, how to move rocks and lift hands when life gets hard and we grow weary. And there are many in our community, both inside and outside, that need someone to help them hold up their arms. Moses, Aaron, and Hur, they could have run to the front lines with Joshua. They could have fought shoulder to shoulder. And Joshua's fighting wasn't, it was, it was an important and significant contribution. However, what made Joshua successful was that his leaders, those above him on the hill, were wholly surrendered to God and one another. Verse 12, when the hands of Moses became heavy, they took a stone and put it under him. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, and so his hands were steady until the sun went down. So Joshua destroyed Amalek and his army with the sword. The battle seems fierce. The enemy is attacking. It is not natural for us, church, to choose surrender. This, in our minds, is not a posture of victory. It is to the Lord. Not only does the victory belong to the Lord, but the battle belongs to the Lord as well. And God has not called us to fight alone. Neither has he called us to rely on our own strength and efforts to win or to gain advantage over our enemies. God has called us to image the posture of Jesus. A posture of surrender. A posture of sacrifice. A posture that can leave no doubt that the God who has brought us to the battle has also brought us through the battle to victory. Verse 13 in the Hebrew language, I love it, it reads this way. So Joshua disabled, weakened, or prostrated Amalek and his army as the sword devoured them. And the presence of the Amalekites in the wilderness reminds us that sin and death are still ever-present and lurking, even outside of Egypt. God worked through Joshua's sword to swallow up and devour the Amalekites during the battle. There's worship. After the victory, there's worship. Look at verse 15. Moses built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. For he said, for a hand was lifted up to the throne of the Lord, that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. One day, friends, one day, many years ago, there was a battle taking place near Jerusalem. And Jesus would find himself on the top of a hill called Golgotha, the Hill of Skulls, Mount Calvary, 
His friends didn't travel up the hill with him. They couldn't. The battle was far too scary. The hill was far too steep of a commitment for them to climb. And it was on that hill far away where Jesus, the Spirit of God, and the Father himself would fight the battle against the enemies of sin and death and the posture that Christ would assume looked like this. Surrender. And when they raised him and he surrendered his life, Victory, victory, victory. On and on and on. Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 to 55, that through Jesus' victory, complete in his resurrection, that the perishable can now be clothed with imperishable. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And that the mortal can be clothed with immortality so that we can rejoice in worship with the prophet Isaiah's words. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory today, tomorrow, and forever. For the Lord is our banner. Just a few observations as we conclude today and our team comes. When God forms a nation, he forms it with imperfect people using imperfect leaders. When God forms a nation, he forms it with intention, purpose, design, and order. And when God forms a nation, he forms it to bring himself glory and to reflect his own image and nature in the world. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life, the true manna from heaven. Jesus is the rock that gives living water. Jesus, the surrendered servant, victorious on the hill of Golgotha. Exodus 16 and 17 is all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word for its power, your son and the victory that he secured overwhelms us because it looks so different than the definition of victory today. We can hardly fathom it, Lord. It catches us off guard. Sometimes perhaps we even are breathless. Countercultural postures of sacrifice, silence, surrender, rest, victory. Victory in a way that our world wouldn't define it, but you do. Power in weakness. Help us, Lord. Help us be an effective people. There is fruit that your spirit needs to produce in us. We want your spirit to produce that fruit so that we can shine. Shine as lights for your son, Jesus. 
and have effect as salt for the people you bring into our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.